Welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is the podcast that explores a full-spectrum spirituality. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm very happy and honored to have you here today. In today's episode, I bring you a recent conversation I had with Robert Wright, and this conversation is part of an ongoing series of conversations I've been having with Bob, where we explore his worldview and see how it's relevant to really the moment we're in um, at this point in civilization. Uh, and his worldview, for the, for the purposes of this series, is, is loosely being called, and somewhat ironically being called, the Dharma of Bob. So this conversation, I think, is number five in the series of the Dharma of Bob series. And it's, it's a conversation that runs in parallel to a project he's deeply involved in now, which is his new book. Um, he's a, a much-celebrated author of many New York Times bestseller books, The Moral Animal, The Evolution of God, Non-Zero, why Be- and Why Buddhism is True. Um, you can, those will all be listed in the show notes for you to check out. But his new project is loosely called The Apocalypse Aversion Project. And in short, he sees that uh, we are all moving to... To, to face very serious worldwide conditions soon, whether it's climate change, whether it's uh, the increased preponderance of, of pandemics and pandemics that could be intentionally engineered by nefarious minds. Um, there, there are multiple things that, are, that the globe is going to continue to face. And, and I think he's right on this, that if we don't have sort of the psychological capacity for global governance, it's almost assured that we will not survive these apocalyptic worldwide problems. And part of his diagnosis of what stands in the way of uh, a unified ability to solve these shared global problems, the thing that stands in the way of that potential are the cognitive biases that fuel tribalism. And, and those cognitive biases have been baked into us or etched into our minds over millions of years through natural selection. So they're very deeply rooted in us, and it, it is a monumental feat to overcome them. But it, this is why you hear sort of the call for we, the species, the human species needs a transformation of consciousness, I would argue, for a broader, wider experience of awakening to unity consciousness. But... Uh, Bob is more prosaic, and he said, we just need to expand uh, our kind of our moral imagination to the point that we transcend tribalism enough to fully, in a wholehearted, good-faith way, enter into non-zero-sum dynamics, which are um, dynamics whereby the outcomes of, of both players are are correlated to each other. So if I win, you win. If you win, I win. It's a win-win, or, or it could be a lose-lose in a non-zero situation. But when we cooperate, we have a much better chance of winning. And that's what Bob's concern is, that we are we're being ripped apart um, based on these biases um, that fuel both nationalism, ethno-nationalism, um, but also fuel domestic tribalism, as if you're a member of the United States or a citizen of the United States, you've been witnessing this at home. Um, and, and so we, when, when we perceive the enemy amidst ourselves all the time, this really stands in the way of any kind of concerted, harmonious effort to solve these more apocalyptic problems. 
So that's my best description of the gist of what Bob's up to right now. And in this episode, which is a little bit long, so settle into it. You can do it during your yin yoga practice if you like. Um, but in this episode, we start out where he's seeking my advice on how to revive his flailing meditation practice. And if I'm honest, this section of the conversation didn't go quite as well as I would have liked. Um, I got kind of spun around with some of the questions and responses I got from Bob. Um, but as I said to him afterwards, if I had a redo, I would just tell you one thing, Bob. To revive your practice, A, check your presumption of what practice is about it sounds like you're trying to get into a particular state or have like your mind focused on one thing and that's not really the heart of the practice the practice is really about becoming okay developing a kind of meta okayness within all conditions so that's one thing i wish i had mentioned or been able to mention to bob kind of my l'esprit d'escalier the spirit of the stairs what you wish you could have said when you were in the room but didn't think of until you were on the stairs leaving that's always a perennial uh, issue for me. Um, but the other thing I wish I had said was uh, just the advice that I gleaned from Ellen Langer. And I had an episode interview with Ellen a couple weeks back, so please check that out. Um, she has a wonderful approach to what she calls non-meditative mindfulness. And in that, all you do is prime your mind to notice novelty, simply notice new things. And so within whatever practice you're doing, if you just notice new things about it, that infuses the whole dynamic with great, a great freshness of attention, a great kind of curious interest. And, and suddenly a very stale practice can feel very alive and flowing. So that's the first part of this conversation. And then we tack into exploring how mindfulness training can strengthen and embolden courage, particularly the kind of courage to speak out against members of your own tribe which I find it would be a very hard thing for me to do. I don't even think I'm there yet or with that ability, but Bob seems to think that this is a, a worthy, noble thing to do as a way of de-escalating the, um, the fuel, uh, the unnecessary fuel that gets added to the tribalistic wars that we're seeing. So uh, that's the gist of this talk or this conversation, and I really hope you enjoy it. I'm going to leave a link in the show notes for um, how you can sign up to Bob's wonderful newsletter called the Non-Zero Newsletter. There's a free and a paid version, both through Substack, um, and I would really encourage you to get on the paid one because he sends out uh, both his own trenchant analysis a few times a week on current things through the lens of his Apocalypse Aversion Project um, book that he's writing. And he also sums up a lot of the events of the week in a weekly digest on Fridays um, that I think what I like about it is that it, it always challenges the way I've been interpreting events in the news. And it always gets me to see things from a different side, from a more balanced, nuanced position. And that I think just the world of media is in desperate need for voices like Bob right now. So if you can help him out, I would be very grateful. Um, there's other ways to support my show and work here too in the show notes. I'm not going to mention that now. I'm just going to say without further ado, I now bring you Robert Wright. More Dharma of Bob. Hi, Josh. Hey, Bob. How you doing? I'm pretty tired. How are you doing? I, I can't complain. I'm actually not so tired as I usually am. Um, today, uh, we've had a series of conversations 
loosely uh, grouped under the rubric the Dharma of Bob, uh, uh, a term you came up with, I always point out. Um, today, uh, maybe the Dharma of Bob part won't pop up immediately. I, I would like to do a, a couple things. I want you to be, if we have time, I want you to be life coach in a couple of sentences. First of all, help me uh, with some meditation problems I'm having right now. My practice isn't in great shape. Uh, and then if we have time at the end... You can be life coach in this deeper sense that you alluded to in our pre-taping uh, patter, where you said you had uh, you have big plans for me, which is good. I like I, I want I want to hear about the big plans for me. Um, and that's why I'm tired because the big plans kept me up all night. You've been thinking it well. Good. I, that's funny. Yeah. One thing we have in common is we stay up at night worrying about my future, and but, you're well, the no, only no, no, other it's, person it's, I know who does that besides me. It's not well. It's not just the, your future. It's the future you're you're trying to avoid. Oh, the apocalypse. Yes. So the apocalypse so the, aversion. Yeah. Right. And so the listeners need to realize that the that the Dharma of Bob is situated in context with that 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 initiative. We are all about it. avoiding yeah. the apocalypse, and uh, this is a, a thing I I focus on in my newsletter, the non-zero newsletter. But there's there's speaking of which, in between these two. Uh, Life coach segments. Uh, I I, I want to talk about uh, the connection between mindfulness and courage. I, I wrote about the courage part in the newsletter recently, and I and if I had had time, I was going to say, uh, you know, um, it may sound surprising for me to jump from mindfulness, which sounds kind of soft and mushy, to recommending courage, which I was saying uh, more of us need to show on social media, including me. Um, but if I had more time, I would have said there's actually a connection. In theory, at least, you should be able to cultivate courage via mindfulness. So I want to talk about that in the middle if we have time. And that would be, that would be the point that we flip the life coaching role. Okay, so that's the hinge? Because, that's, yeah, that, that's, that's the pivot part of the point. Hinge. Yeah. Okay, from pedestrian life coaching to profound uh, and visionary life coaching. We've got, okay. the, we've got, the, we've got it set. Let's okay. do it. Okay. So, so talk to me. Like, so, so before we go into the meditation, just so that the, yeah. I mean, the audience doesn't take what I say too seriously here in, in terms of the guru thing, um, it's I, the way I'm going to talk to you about this is, is is what I do with a lot of my peers and friends. We just we share and talk about our practice, and we sort of try to triage what we think is going on for each other, and and it's sort of a peer to peer mentorship. I mean, you have done, I guess, a little meditation teaching, kind of in an ancillary way. You're mainly a yoga teacher. But Actually, I've, I've let you, I've let you slide with that one, and I haven't interjected. I do teach meditation regularly. I have actually a lot of meditation teaching background. I've taught okay. at Boston University, you know, sports psychology program for a while, and I'm also, a, I was an acupuncturist uh, be, before the middle of COVID, which shut that down. So I have a, three different hats. Two of them, actually three of them, are all quite related. Um, okay. So I have well, good. that in the mix. I, 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 maybe at some point we'll get to the sports psychology part. I'm fascinated by... Well, that's going to come into... That's going to that's that's come up when we triage your practice Is it? right now. Yeah. You're going to help my golf game? Well, no, I'm going to help your game with the way... See, the sports psychology piece was a, a, a professor of sports psychology invited me into her positive psychology class to talk about mindfulness one time, and then she hatched this idea of me giving an intervention tr- slash training to the Boston women's 
soccer team, Boston University women's soccer team. Ah. So it was one of these things that she did a pre-post analysis on their psychological uh, experience of stress, among other things, and I was the, the quote-unquote teacher, um, and I learned some things in that that I might be able to And you transformed them into a world-class team? Just say yes. It's, yes. It's, trust me. I have, I'm not good at marketing myself, but I, but I have basic marketing instincts. Just say yes. I, well, it was mostly that my, the colleagues' work, but she, she, she did it. But she did find that there was much better um, a capacity that the players had to uh, navigate their stress, get back into the zone. Um, and, and, the, the, and it was really the first Division I uh, study on, on mindfulness and really? sport. Really? I didn't know this about your, your history. There's you're a lot too, of things. You're too modest. That, There's a lot of things I don't know. Probably some of them you don't want me to know, and then you, you can keep those... <laughs> No, yeah, those came out too. Uh, so, well, that's good. I mean, we should do a whole conversation on sports psychology because I'm a head case on any athletic in any athletic endeavor. I am a head case. You can name the sport, I will be a head case. But we'll get back to that. Let's talk about my meditation problem. I blame it on the pandemic. So here's my the pattern of my meditation practice had been. I'll go to a meditation retreat. It will kind of recharge my practice and that'll last for more than a year. And then I'll feel I need another retreat. So I was kind of going to retreats about every two years, like one week silent meditation retreat, sometimes 10 days. The longest ever was two weeks. Um, and, uh, and then I, I was due for one this summer, but then the pandemic, as you know, you're, you're, you've heard about this pandemic thing probably. Uh, it hit. Uh, and by the way, I, I, I looked at uh, IMS's uh, site today, and there's still not – I still don't see any signs of, of, of live physical retreats on the calendar. So I don't know how long it will be. But um, the uh, – so as a result, I feel like my, my practice – I still do it, and I think I deserve some credit for that. I get up in the morning. I do my – for reasons I, I probably shouldn't get into, I've been setting the timer for 34 minutes. Odd, odd number, I know. And you don't want to explain the you don't odd number. Know. You don't, well, I'll tell you, honestly, when, you're, when your practice isn't going that great, so it's not like you're, 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 you're exactly looking forward to it. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like lumpy oatmeal. Yeah, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, oh, can I do 40 minutes of this? Well, I should do more than 30. Well, 34 seems like closer to 30 than it is to 40. It seems like I can do that. So that's how I got into 34. Am I, am I starting to sound like a problematic case? It's starting to come into focus. Yeah. Carry it. Uh, and uh, I don't know how to describe it. It's like at one end of the spectrum, like when you're, you know, right after you've done a retreat or in day five of a retreat or something, you just sit down. You focus on the breath, you know, certainly within like a minute or so, you can easily focus and immerse on and immerse yourself in kind of 10 consecutive breaths, no sweat, you keep going. Um, and then, you know, six months after the retreat may take you five minutes, what was taking you a minute. And now... More than two years after my last retreat. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like just a linear decline, okay? You 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 know, you have your ups and downs. But at the moment, it just seems like 
I'm lucky to be able to focus on 10 consecutive breaths by the end of the session. It's like, and and I think part of it is I've kind of given up. I, I just, I sit down and it's like, I, in a way, maybe what I've done is get into a version of Zen. You know, you hear that some Zen instructions are like, just sit down and do nothing. You know, don't, they don't say focus on your breath, blah, blah, blah. Just, just be, just sit. Like, okay, I sit, my mind wanders, you know, and then it's like, fine, this is okay. Okay, I'll do that. Um, and, and then it does, you know, it's like slowly you get a little of that out of your system and you get a little calmer and better able to focus, but it, it may be as simple as just like telling myself, no, sit down and focus on your damn breath right away. But I don't think it's going to be that simple. No, well, that wouldn't be my, my recommendation. No, of course so. not, because you're one of these meditation people who's like, be gentle with yourself. No, <laughs> gentle, well, okay, that, that will feed into the courage piece later. Okay. Because, because that, 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 you're, that tiptoes into the, the, the dynamic of compassion versus what the Tibetans compare to, compare to idiot compassion. Idiot so, compassion. Idiot compassion is just indulging the whinging, desiring, uh, whatever. Being too uh, easy on yourself is idiot Right, just, compassion. you know, if you're sleepy in meditation, go back to sleep. If you're right. not feeling good, you know, just move right. and, and maybe get up and have a coffee or something. You don't, right. it's not, not, not the right time to do it. Come back when it feels right, right for right. you. That, that's, that's like, you're that's indulgent. That. Yeah, that's, that, yes, I, I'm against that. So, yeah, real compassion is, is investigating and, and, and opening to the, the pain of experience and, and, and wishing that to be mitigated, to, 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 to relieve the suffering. Well, but you shouldn't really quite <clears throat> be sitting there wishing for it to be mitigated and go away, right? Sure, that can be part of the, the intention. Well, it can in be this, part in, of the in intention the sense going in, but, but when you're sitting there, you shouldn't be trying to push it away. Not push it away, right. right. Like, not push it away, but to open to it. And then, in, like, that is what awakens the compassion. It's that it's in, in the encounter with the difficulty that, that, that you, you, you brush up against or, or encounter the pain, which then to animates the, the aspiration of the heart to, to have it be relieved. But in a, in a deep level, which is the, the letting go. I mean, the, and, you, and you, I know you know this, but the letting go of the, the desire that it goes away is the is the is the pivot. Yeah. Within that process, so so let's back up because it started out. You're talking about you go on these retreats once every couple of years, and they recharge your practice, and you come off, and then you know you're able to sit down and lock in on the breath, and, and you and you get in that groove pretty quickly, and you're able to focus. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an incredibly common experience. I know that experience myself well. And what I'm, I hear, and I'm checking with you, you see if you recognize this, but there's a subtle clinging to that focus that you develop on retreat. Probably. And and that's and then I mean I know many of my friends are like this that they they feel like they they just sort of need to get back on retreat to reamp and keep that level of samadhi or concentration going. And then if they don't, if they lose that, if that gets degraded, then somehow the practice is in the ditch, which is essentially, I think, what you're describing. Probably. Okay. So I would, you know, one thing you could do is is just reach, step back and let's discuss what the frame of the practice is about. Okay. So 
in your words, what, how would you describe what you're trying to quote unquote, what kind of process or, uh, development are you engaged with in the meditation? Do you mean, what are the overarching goals or? Yes. That's one way of putting it. Well, like, I mean, what's the, what's the outcome that gets, that gets to, I mean, meditation in Buddhism is referred to as bhavana. It's a development, it's a cultivation. Mm-hmm. So what is getting cultivated? Well, I mean, I I, I mean, broadly speaking, you could say mindfulness. That's the tradition of meditation. It's it's not the only Buddhist tradition of meditation, but it's the kind uh, that I'm that I'm kind of in. And and also, I mean, it's like. uh, So let me push that further. What is the function of mindfulness? To what end? Well, you know, it's it's funny. I mean, people have. Uh, ask me. There's some very practical things, like the, the, like what's the virtue of mindfulness practice? And sometimes I just say you do fewer regret, regrettable things, right? I mean, you, right. You're, you're and and that's that's because you're in a more balanced, equanimous state, less likely to fly off the handle, less likely to send the ill-advised email, uh, you know, the ill-advised retweet. So there's wisdom. There's wisdom. I think in a previous yeah. conversation, you, you succinctly defined wisdom as, at one level, just avoiding bad outcomes, right? Yeah. Don't as uh, yeah, Obama described his, his foreign policy aspiration is don't do stupid shit. It's better than doing it, and it's a start. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's it's not all the way to enlightenment um, or nirvana, which you know are kind of the same, or arrive at the same time, but. Uh, but it's uh uh yeah th- i mean that that's uh you know it's a uh certainly yeah wisdom is it, it it's it's being in the kind of emotional and mental state that facilitates wise action um and mm-hmm. uh i i would say that's you know and i mean to 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 get back you know to 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 stay on a pragmatic note and and efficient action, like I mean, wasting time is is also not the wisest thing you can do in the world. Um, right. You hear you hear the phrase skillful action, yeah. skillful skillful means. Yeah, skillful means is a common one in in Buddhism, and and it refers to you know the the, the sense is kind of you know you're kind of sizing the situation up and doing the wise thing given what you want to achieve and. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it allows you to live a skillful life. There's a lot of ways you could describe mindfulness. Um, but I think at a practical level, it, uh, facilitates, um, uh, effective and wise intervention in the world. Um, and, and as a byproduct, uh, you know, it, it, it you would expect it to increase your well-being and, and it, and it tends to, I think increase your appreciation of you know. Uh, okay, okay, but let's, let's come back to let's come back to the, the, the your experience and the practice around your breath because right. it, it sounds like there's a dichotomy or a binary between good practice and bad practice in your mind, and and good practice based on what you're saying would be predicated on being able to sustain your attention on your breath for more than ten cycles. Uh, it, it, it has tended to involve that in, in my experience when my practice is what I, you know, 
when I would call my practice like going well, uh, I would have that capacity. Yes. Right. So that's, I mean, that happens when, when the conditions supported on retreat and this, and I think retreat experience gives, gives everyone that does it a really good felt experience of that development. Mm -hmm. But in daily life to, to kind of, hang on, try to cling to the, the, the momentum that we, we have on retreat is a, is a recipe for, for dissatisfaction. Well, let me add. So, 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 so I, let me just come back to the breath though. It's if you're, if the practice is about developing the capacity for skillful action, skillful perception, wisdom, compassion, those things, then, then, then what I would want to talk with you about is how does the dynamic of the meditation facilitate that development? And, and to quote the Thai teacher of the last century, Ajahn Shah, like, who said, a hen can stay on her nest immobile for hours and hours and hours uh, watching over her eggs. That doesn't make her wise. So, you know, and the analogy is just st- keeping your attention stuck on the breath mm-hmm. is not necessarily going to produce a deeper level of understanding. As, as I know, I've heard you talk about the understanding the structure of experience or the structure of the self or the structure of uh, emotion and feeling and all that. So I would want to look into the dynamic between when you're on the breath, when you get off the breath, what you're aware of and what you, how you treat waking up to not being present on the breath, because it's in that territory. I think that the, that the real important, insights and, and, and broader perspectives start to come vis-a-vis the reference point of the breath, not keeping the attention sure. on the but breath. There's but two, I mean, there's two different issues here. One is like, okay, let's say you're in the groove and you're focusing on your breath well. You realize that's not the end, like, goal. That's not, you, you know, that's not the point. I mean, unless you're really, you know, pursuing samadhi and doing kind of concentration meditation, and, and that's a different thing. But if you're doing mindfulness meditation, the point of the focus is to kind of, some would say, stabilize the mind, whatever. But that's that's as a way station to something else. Okay, that's one point, fine. And and if Ajahn Chah said that in this context, fine. But that's different from saying, I'm not even getting to the point where I'm focusing on the breath, right? These are two, you know, can something useful happen without going through that way station? And let me add, um, something does. I mean, one, one thing that uh, keeps me going is that it's not a complete waste of time. I mean, I, I, I sometimes say that, like, look, at a minimum, it's better than average mind wandering, by which I mean, you know, if you sit there long enough, just with your eyes closed and and there's mind wandering without outside intervention. In other words, it's not like your mind wanders and then you see a tweet. Your mind wanders and you see CNN. Your mind want, you know, no, it's it's like it's like sealed off mind wandering. And in my experience, uh as the time passes, you know, 5, 10 minutes or so, you you are you're calming down a little. You are um Something is changing and, and like, for example, good ideas are more likely to pop into my mind. I may not be thinking about them, but it'll just be an idea that's relevant to my work. And, and, uh, and also the, you know, then the time will often arrive where, uh, oh, you can focus on your breaths if you want now. And that's, that's not necessarily Critical is something to do at that stage, but it's a sign 
that that you have you know you have kind of uh uh your, your mind is is calming down a little stabilizing so uh i well, right and i and i and i've so in my own practice life and and this is where i think not so much in where we we started practice more or less at the same around the same time give or take a few years but i think uh, I, I don't, I probably worked with more teachers offering different approaches. Yeah. And so my approach in general is, is, is more is analogous to the way I think a jazz musician develops themselves, which is you, you, you survey a whole bunch of influences. You, you really steep yourself in the ones you resonate with and then you integrate them and then you ultimately figure out how to make them come alive in your own experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I've been in a practice where for a long time it was just to be receptive to whatever the hell happened to the mind wandering or not to let that go on. And I found that, and this is actually what I recommend for beginners because it, there's too much too too, it's too easy for a, a person in meditation to, to really create a divided mind that there's some experience to have some experiences not to have. And I, I think with, if you have the frame around the, the practice the way that I read the Buddhist instructions, the practice is to be aware and interested and explorative of all experiences. And, and, and that includes the mind wandering. And the question then is how do you get to know what's going on the mind wandering? That's through reflection. And I don't, I don't have any problem. I think there's, there's been a right. emphasis I mean, in, in, in contemporary mindfulness. Hang on. There's been a contemporary emphasis in mindfulness to, to get, into the present moment, like locked into the present moment. That's the only um, sort of lane of experience that will produce any kind of wisdom or value. And that, that to me is just too reductive. Right. But when you're locked, when you're doing the mind wandering, you're not observing it. You're not observing it, but that, but that doesn't mean that something like uninteresting isn't occurring within it or that there's something. No, like I said, it's better than average mind wandering, but, but it's, uh, and, and I accept that and that's fine, but th- there's, uh, it's, well, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. So you're familiar with the list of the hindrances, right? The difficult well, there, mindsets. There are various lists, but, uh, some shorter than others, but yeah. The, 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 the five big ones, the Navarna's, um, desiring mind, ill will, the ill, what mind of ill will, the anxiety, restless worry mind, the, the, the low energy mind and the doubting mind. And, I mean, there's a kind of presumption that in, in mindfulness practice, you're meant to sort of catch and release these whenever they arise. You know, if you catch your mind desiring, you recognize it, you, you put, kind of become mm-hmm. aware of it and then let it go and come back mm-hmm. to your breath. But the wandering mind itself is going to be some permutation and combination of the spectrum of those energies. And to understand them, you have to let them go on a bit. And then, you know, reflect back either during the meditation or even after the meditation, get, get a sense of what their mind is preoccupied with. And that's, and that's, I think, pretty accurately described in, in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Sutta on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, when the Buddha refers to looking at the hindrances when they're present, when they're absent, getting a sense of how are they released when they arise, what kinds of fuel, how do they come to be in your mind. That requires a comprehensive Understanding that that if you were limited to strictly present moment attention would not be possible 
Well, so no, was, but I mean, an, another way of putting the problem is that, like, observing the things you're saying should be observed that you just listed is easier in some states of mind than others. And I'm saying that when my practice isn't going well, it's taking me a long time to get into the kind of state of mind where you can observe these kinds of things. So by your own definition, things aren't going great. <laughs> well, no. So let's, let's come back to something more fundamental. Just basically we're describing being present and drifting off. Right. There's moments when you're awake and you're aware that you're doing what you're doing. And then there's moments where you've drifted off. Yeah. Right. So the question is, when you wake up, when you wake up to having drifted, really at that moment, I think we've talked about this a little bit before. But to me, in my view, that is the pivot point and the most important point of the whole process. Mm -hmm. Not. Not being on the breath, not being focused on the body, but what do you? How do you navigate that moment of wake? Being when wake, you go, wake you mean home? when you go? Oh, my mind is wandering. Right. What do you do at that point? Okay. What do you yeah. recommend? Well, there's a variety of things you could recommend, but one is like, uh, a to appreciate it. The, in the, the sense the of be grateful, or in the sense of of be aware. Uh, be great. I mean. I mean, celebrate it in a sense of reward yourself, like in, in a kind of way that the oh, mind yeah. is awake again. And that's, I'm borrowing this from a few other teachers that I've, I've uh, expo- been exposed to who really encourage, you know, to smile gently. I mean, this is just one. I'm not recommending you do this necessarily, but you could smile in the, <laughs> in the mind because that has a cascade of, of biochemical effects through the body and it is conducive to tranquility. When you're receptive to that experience, you're, you're basically praising your your mind for doing what you in, are uh, encouraging it to do, which is to mm-hmm. be present. So if you, every time, like if you wake up and you and you kind of reflexively slap your wrists, do the old Homer Simpson dull, and and then hustle back to the breath, it's like training a dog. If you negatively reinforce the dog when they do the behavior you want. Right. They're not, they're not as likely to do. Right. No, that's, that's, I mean, I remember at my very first retreat, uh, the teacher, uh, I think I wrote about this in my book, but the teacher is like, you know, it's the first time during the retreat where you meet in a group for, uh, with a teacher. So for this one, one 45 minutes, the silence is going to be broken after like three days. And it was my first retreat or it was probably, it was probably second day or first day since I was, I was a beginner. They would have uh, seen me early. And, and I was like, uh, so how's it going? And I'm like, uh, well, uh, you know, I just, I just keep, uh, I just keep like, you know, uh, realizing that I'm not focusing on my breath. It's like, that's great. You know, you're realizing that you're not focusing on your breath. And I'm like, yeah, but it happens like all the time. She's, she's like, that's even better. <laughs> like, that's what you're saying. I mean, the, exactly. The, no, ex- that in itself is an insight into anatta. Into not self. Yeah. How, you have, uh, you, elaborate you, on that. Elaborate well, on how that's an insight into not self. Your conscious attention, your, your, your conscious sense of self tries to do a simple task and you get disabused of your ability to do that task again and again and again. You're not in charge of your mind the way you think you are. Mm -hmm. Right? Yes. 
Although, so, ironically, you know, becoming more aware of that kind of, in a certain sense, put you put you in charge. But we'll leave that all that aside. The um, okay. So, so I, I, I had I had a session with my online group on Monday, and we were talking about the theme of doubt, and um, there was a kind of a connection that was made to an article in the New York Times by Adam Grant, I believe, on this kind of malaise that is sort of pervading the, the, the collective right now that he referred to with the word languishing. Oh, where, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. I saw that piece. Thrive, in between thriving and, and full-scale depression, there's this middling state, uh, kind of energy of just not thriving, kind of the, the, the meh mind. Like things just aren't spicy or attractive. You don't feel engaged and uh, enthusiastic as much as you would. Um, but his antidote was flow. And this gets back to the to the to the, uh, the sports psychology thing. Um, this is an idea most famously associated with uh, Cheek Sent Me High is one, one pronunciation of that formidable last name. Chick Sent Me High. Yeah. So yes, and if um, like so, so what I brought into the to the group on Monday was how can you practice in a way that supports the experience of flow. And then, I mean, you're, 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 I think in some level you're, yeah. you're, you're feeling like there is no flow that you're kind of like grinding things out and it's a little bit routinized and dull and not, not very exciting. So what I offered to them and, and the feedback from many was pretty good. A few had difficulties with it. So again, one size fits all practice. I don't believe in uh, every instruction is going to work for everybody, but was at the moment of waking up to pause and just reflect on what you had been drifting into, if you can. And to see that within the drifting, there's some manifestation of one of the hindrances. Like there's a desire for something, you're planning, you're remembering, you're hashing out of something you're going to write about. And then the follow-up question I had was, once you can are able to sort of recognize what's going on, to inquire into what, and, and, and I can already sense you might, audience members will roll their eyes when they hear me say this, but to sense the energy, what the energy is in trying to achieve within that state. Like what is, what is, what is it? What's the kind of the root of it in terms of what is it seeking? What, what is that energy? What, seeking? Is, what is what seeking? The energy, the energy? That, that you were like the state of mind that you were in that, that departed you from the perch of the breath or the, the feeling of your hands or your body. When your mind departs from that experience, there's an unconscious kind of train of, 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 um, that's seeking something. Yeah, there always is. That's the whole problem. No, but, th- but this is the problem to understand. Mm-hmm. So, so as soon as, but I mean, as you're, soon always, as you, you're always, you, you know, the, the, the problem of life at some level, you know, according to Buddhism is that you're always grasping for something. Right. So you're see, in a sense, you're seeing the grasping mind, you know, just sure. after, after it's left the gate. Yeah. OK, so that's that's an important piece. And then um, what I was trying to encourage was once you can if you're able to sense what it's grasping or seeking. In a sense, to see the limitations of that strategy. Uh, of the thing that you've of the grasping. Yeah. Or to just, to, or even just to feel, feel into it and, and let it be heard, because and this is what I was trying to get at with the, the idea of compassion is that when you see 
over and over again how the conditioned habit patterns, this like in Buddhism they refer to as sankharas, or in yogic terminology, samskara, when you see those habit patterns, and they, they, they have to, they break into consciousness from the unconscious when your mind wanders. Mm-hmm. And then something wakes you up, and then you are able to get some bearing on it. And at that point, you can, what I was recommending is to, A, listen to it, get a sense of what it's seeking, and then just let it be heard. So there's no fighting with it. You're listening to the experience. Okay. And then, and then you can return to your person. So then it resets. And the reason I'm saying this is because, and this, this will, I'm going to try to build this metaphor into other territory in our conversation is I've been during the pandemic. One of the things I've been uh, doing just as a hobby is trying to get my, my, um, my music hobby back in, in gear. And I used to try to, I tried to be a musician at one point, but the, the main problem I had in, in, in the world of music was that I had a terrible musical ear. I had lots of other skills. That's, I could read music. That's, I that's could a hindrance of, an, of another kind. Yes. Right. Um, but there are software and apps now that train the ear. Hmm. And what's kind of um, confidence inspiring about working with these apps is that you're, you can see yourself progress. That there's actually they 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 like the app I'm using will play a chord progression, a harmonic progression. At the end of it, they'll play a note, and you have to guess. That's the question. You have to guess what note it is in relationship to the context of the other sounds. Right. And I think there's a, an analogy here that in 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 uh, meditation, you're tuning your mind. That's what like you know you, you, in the Eightfold Path, you know the word sama ditti sama. Uh, speech like the, the wise wise speech wise action all those things the word sama i from one teacher i've had describes it as being in tune it's it's the it's it's a it's a quality of being in tune with your speech being in tune with your mind being it's in usually tune trans, tune. translated as as right conventionally but some people have issues with that translation i think you have an implicit bias based on your own name around that but but that it is the predominant right i mean that is the right speech right and, and then there's been a backlash against that but over the over the decades that has been the main translation right I've seen wise and, and right inter- used interchangeably, but but either one that then that becomes this sort of like rigid form of dogma that you just have to comply to what's right and not. And I think being in tune is, is much more flexible, um, less rigid uh, way of looking at it. But the point is you're learning to become in tune with your experience so that you then have that skillfulness to play within the dynamics of your life. The more you're able to recognize the patterns clearly for what they are, whether it's not being with a breath or planning or remembering, and you're, you're better able to, to recognize them off the cushion. Right. And, sure, sure. and so, so there's like, basically I'm trying to, Figure out a try to help you consider using all the phases of the meditation as valuable to the meditation. There's no experience that, like, as you know, one of the teacher we shared, Rodney Smith, would say, the only experience to have in meditation is the one you're having. Any other, any other. <laughs> Rodney act- would say that, and then he would follow that uh, by chastising you for having the wrong experience. But I digress. I mean, I love Rodney. I've had him on the show. Uh, but uh, but yeah, go ahead. 
I mean, and this, and by the way, we should say, I mean, all of this, one reason if I sound a little skeptical is like, uh, Buddhism has evolved and assumed many forms, and there are many traditions and so on, and it's been taught in a billion ways. And I yeah. think your version is being refracted through a particular modern sensibility uh, that doesn't like admonition, but you know well that there are Buddhist traditions where the where the where the teacher like hits you on the head for falling asleep, right? And and uh, so it, it is, you know, it's um, well, well, but but okay, so I have to I have to push back on that charge of me being just a woo woo soft. No, I didn't say you're woo. I'm saying you're a particular person in a particular cultural milieu and doing a particular interpretation. Right, but I've also okay. I've, but I've practiced in systems. I think that arguably are just as hard as the one you just described. And I've gone the hard route, and it is not. I don't think it's necessary. I just do not think it's necessary. But well, I don't want said, anybody to hit me on the head. I'm not. I'm not ask, asking for that. Definitely. But the the aim. I mean, I'm interested in, in people waking up to sort of their true nature. And, 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 and that is, that, that requires a certain fire. I'm not, I'm not diluting it. I mean, the, the, the fire of it so much. So it's like, as, as I think one author said, it's, it's the gurgling babble of a California hot tub. But the point is, if, if you are, like, if you are interested in samadhi and developing, uh, uh, the, the, the calm states and the ability to see, like, samadhi in is, a particular concentration in a, focus kind of still, stillness. That's, a, that's another word that I think gets mistranslated. Because that's, I mean, this is sort of the heart of it. You're, you keep talking about focused attention. That's a, that's a very narrow form of... of well, but of, it, it is uh, part of... I mean, as often translated, it is one of two primary... Uh, uh, well, as commonly translated, it's, um, you know, one of two primary kinds of meditation it's you know it's it's prominent you're you're so you're you're uh you're taking issue with one common translation of it but it's not like um right right but uh, i mean if you put the term in context with other images of what the buddha referred to as samadhi right. the narrow focus point i don't think put uh supported it, okay. he, he, de- he defined it as a, as, a, as a collected gathered unified state Similar to what it's—it's it's like when a, 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 a warm spring comes up through a body of cold water. It, it diffuses through the the whole thing, the whole body. So there's it, a pervasive sense of warmth. Yeah. Well, here now, now here, I'm going to be more contemporary and less traditional than you. I think in the sense that I just all of this business about what the Buddha actually meant. Uh, you know, it's like the the tradition. You know, there's an array of texts that say an array of things in different traditions. And the idea that we can reconstruct exactly what the Buddha, how the Buddha would have translated each word and exactly what he meant is, I think, uh, we don't have to get into the philosophy of this, but I I think, um, you know, Stephen Batchelor does this and I've had conversations with him and kind of, Accuse him of trying to convince us that uh, the Buddha would would give the Stephen Batchelor interpretation his the Buddha seal of approval, right? And uh, I, 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 it's like also just different things work for different people. 
Sure. I mean, you're, I mean, I'm sure, you know, you're not here to say that like, uh, say Tibetans who emphasize a lot of visualization have it wrong, right? The tradition went in that direction in a particular place at a particular time. Some people find it useful. It's very different from what we're talking about. Um, right. So I don't know. I mean, I just, uh, the, 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 you know, uh, I guess I would say, look, if stillness, we all agree stillness is a great thing. Uh, and it's certainly part of the, the aspiration in this tradition. Whether all the people who have translated samadhi in other terms are wrong is, is I don't, I don't see the point of arguing. Well, well, what you mean by stillness conditions how you relate to what goes on in your practice. Well, right, but it doesn't matter whether I say that that's the translation of samadhi. I'm, I'm totally, I'm totally on board for stillness. Okay, so, so the means by which we become still is is different depending on if you're trying to focus on your breath and do it versus if you rest into you know what's going on and start to intuit, which I, and I. You're going to cut me off if I say this, but I think this is what the Buddha means by wise stillness. It's not a stillness absent of experience. It's a stillness within the field of experience because that's what produces, that will give you insight into the nature of things. You can't tune everything out. So the stillness is radically inclusive of all conditions, like sensations, feelings, thoughts, all of it arise and pass away within the, the experience of stillness. Or well, the experience yeah. I mean, of, the experience of stillness allows you to observe all these things and be aware of them. Yes. Right. No, I've been there. We don't, we're not arguing about that. Right. No, we're, 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 we're debating on how to proceed when the momentum of a particular kind of concentration degrades off retreat. Well, I'm not even debating that. The only thing I'm debating is whether we should keep pausing to talk about what the Buddha actually meant. I just don't think we should. And uh, but um, and what words, how words should be translated, and so on. But but uh, I'm happy no, to leave I, that. Aside. I can leave that yeah, aside. Yeah. Um, the uh, but I mean, I take it. So yeah, I mean, you've given me a couple of things to think about. I mean, one is to try to uh, when I do notice that my mind is wandering. Uh, which at the moment is happening <laughs> all too infrequently in my view. But when I do notice that, kind of celebrate it, which I think makes sense. I'll even try the smile thing. As you know, it doesn't come naturally to me. I'm willing to, I'm willing to give the occasional smile a try. Um, the, uh, and then the other thing, which maybe I'm a little fuzzy on, but it has to do with uh, trying to, as long as you're noticing that your mind was wandering, observe uh, certain things about the nature of the wandering, what was driving the wandering. Uh, and you want me to think of that in terms of the five hindrances. Is that right? I would say use the five hindrances as a, as a placeholder for the spectrum of things that p- propel you into thought. And it's not all negative. There might be things that you can think about that actually, you know, whether it's related to your work or something that I think are fine to consider. Yeah. And even actually, I, I, I misspoke there. All of it is fine. All of it's fine. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, then we're then 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 we, then uh, then we've succeeded. It's all fine. It's all good. The the I I mean you know my, it's funny my 
a different tendency I would have had is to think that um, you can always, if you observe the mind wandering closely enough, uh, you can always see it as being driven uh, by either, uh, well, you know, the, the, the greed, hatred, and delusion thing. You can translate the greed as more as more like this this clinging attraction to grasping, and you can translate the hatred more as aversion. I would say you can always view what's driving your mind wandering as one of those two things in a certain sense. You know, you're you're there's, there's something there's something you're wanting, there's something uh there's something driving the thought pattern. And it's either it's either desiring, you know, something, desiring to believe something, desiring to convince yourself of something, or it's, or, or it's, or it's, uh, you know, being averse to some, to some thought or to some way of thinking about things. And even those can be boiled down to tanha. I mean, I mean, you, you can, you can subsume both of those under tanha. You're, you're, you're always either craving the thing or craving to be away from the thing, right? Um, yes. So, so that that would have been my natural tendency. I'll have to, I'll have to like, I'll have so, to wrap my me, mind around this five hindrance uh, scheme of, of 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 assessing your, um, you know, uh, of observing the the mind wandering. It could. I mean, you. That was just a starting point. You could do exactly what you just described. Yeah. So you could wake up and just sort of, as you wake up to the wandering, and, and to be clear, I don't think you're going to be aware of the wandering while it's occurring most of the time. Very hard. Yeah, I, I would say almost by definition, but maybe when I'm closer to enlightenment, I won't say that. Right. No, and I think, and I'm not there either, but I, I think that that does get held up as an ideal you know, many teachers say there's no problems with thoughts. Just be aware of thoughts while you're having your thoughts. And, and I think we've talked about this maybe a year or two back. But that, in my experience, I tried. I really got into watching. Is that possible? Is it possible to be aware of thoughts while they're occurring in real time? And every time I was sufficiently aware of thoughts occurring, that had an operational influence of interrupting the thoughts, and they've just vanished. Right. And certain teachers would say that's great, but. If you're interested in getting to understand how thoughts function, how thoughts condition your view, I think it's it behooves us to let it go on for a while, and just as long as it does, really. And then when you realize it, you, that you woke, you've woken up to it, then you can look back through it a little yeah. bit. But what I'm really part of what I'm you know, if you picked up on the smiling bit or the celebrating bit, this is um, there's a style of meditation by an American monk, Bhante Vimalarasi or Vimalarasi who has a, a system that he attributes to having extracted from the suttas, the early teachings, and it's he calls it a five-hour pattern. So you, when you wake up, you recognize what that you've wandered, and you recognize what you're aware of. Mm-hmm. You re-smile, so you re-establish a soft smile. You relax your body. Am I getting, getting these R's in, incorrect? Mm-hmm. And then you, you, re, then you let it be. It's a, it's a form of releasing it. Just mm-hmm. let it be. And then and only then, after you've gone through that step, you return. And his argument is if you don't do those steps, you inevitably build in extra unnecessary tension. There's a struggle or fight with the wandering. And, it, and his point is you have to go around the cycle over and over and over so again. So wait, you recognize, you re-smile, you, um, you relax, you, and then the, you... Physically. Return. Yeah, you yeah. You relax physically. 
Sounds because easy. Because there's often, in, in thinking, you, there's a subtle tension that can creep in the, into the physical experience. Sure. And then, you, and then you do what? You return to? You return what? to whatever your primary object was. So oh, if that okay. was the breath. He, and he actually recommends metta practice. Not as like a... Loving kindness. Uh, not, not as, loving kindness. Not as a ongoing repetition of a phrase, but just as using one phrase. Yeah. And then relaxing within the, the, the sort of the, the feeling of the chest or the heart until your mind wanders again and you repeat it. Okay. So there's a, there's, a, there's a way, I mean, you know, uh, I know John Kabat-Zinn would say something like this. It's going around that cycle that is the equivalent of doing a repetition with a weight in your arm. Mm-hmm. Like for when you, like coming back to the Ajahn Chah thing, if you stay just on your breath, that is not going to give you the training conditions to really develop both mm-hmm. the mindfulness of what it's like when your mind is not with the breath to see how your mind moves. That's one way of describing mindfulness, right? You're seeing how your mind moves from one thing to another and the relationships within that process. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, well, the four thing, the four R thing is interesting too. I, I'm, I, I'm afraid I, I can't oblige him on the meta, uh, the meta front, but uh, the, the, um, that's interesting too. So you give me plenty to think about. And I already have in mind questions for next time we talk about this. Um, things I'm, you know, I'd like to actually bring up now, but I think we should move on to this courage and mindfulness thing. Uh, yes. because it's of genuine interest to me. And, and, and let me, you know, I think you read, you read the piece I'm going to reference in my, in, in my newsletter, the non-zero newsletter, the, 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 point was uh it was an argument that uh you know we should be willing to uh do things on social media if that's where we are that are unpopular in our tribe uh we don't have to go over what's that and risk the blowback and risk the blowback if you think if you think your tribe is kind of well thinking tribally for any reason not acknowledging something that that's just not consistent. You know, there's something that happened that really doesn't fit into the talking points of the tribe. And so nobody's kind of acknowledging it, the reality of it, or this, this could have been like, you know, um, or back, back in olden days when uh, Trump was president, um, you know, uh, everybody's seizing on something as evidence of his collusion with Russia when really, it's not, and you're going overboard, and it's just not the smoking gun, and people are going crazy, and it allows people in the other tribe to rightly ridicule you, and so on. It could be any number of things. It could be, uh, you know, you think, uh, you think the wokeness is, is going too far and distorting your tribe's vision, or if you're in another tribe, it could be something else. It doesn't matter. Uh, but the point was, um, it, you know, on social media, it can take real courage to take a stand like that uh, because uh, it's very painful for a bunch of people to jump in and uh, and condemn you, as will pretty reliably happen in situations like this. I mean, you can you can you can phrase things in a way that reduce the chances of that, maybe. But still, we can all probably think of, of things uh, we're tempted to say uh, that that aren't going to be popular within our tribe, and um, 
and we just don't. And it happens to me all the time, you know. And, and but I was I was singing the praises of the courage, uh, and I was thinking, you know, there has to be a way to use mindfulness to cultivate courage because what keeps you from courage is fear, and and you know, fear of the blowback. Uh, and, 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 and maybe fear of various feelings you'll have after the blowback. Uh, well, and then, I mean, I was hoping you'd explain, say more about this, but on, from the evolutionary psychological front, this must be rooted in, in, in social ostracization, right? Like that's, that has to be a deeply rooted kind of atavistic fear. Sure. Uh, and, and a desire to be thought highly of, you know, within your peer group, uh, 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 you know, but, but yeah, the, the ultimate opposite of that being actual ostracization. You don't want to be close to that end of the spectrum. You want to be close, close to the, to the accepted and admired, uh, end of the spectrum. And so, and yeah. Then you, a, and then you, and then you combine livelihood to that ostracization in the form of canceling. Uh, yeah, it can, it can have real career stakes. Um, and again, like that's like the extreme case can be cancellation, losing your job. But even the increments along the way uh, are are things you're naturally averse to. You know, just just uh, a few people thinking you're cancel worthy or a few people thinking less of you than they thought before, uh, uh, you know, um, because in this environment, you can say reasonable things. And be accused of almost anything, you know. Uh, yeah, there's you a know? pile up, and then and then and, and I don't know. I mean, I looked at the article you wrote. I mean, I've read it a few times now, and I, I was on your Substack page and saw some of the was reading through some of the comments, and I was just impressed by the number of people that were chiming and saying, "Well, I, I'm I'm off social media now. I pulled out, I pulled the plug mm-hmm. on that completely, mm-hmm. and 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 I've done more or less a similar thing." Um, because it's just with, with the pile up, it's impossible to, to, to process that. There's no conversation. There's no discussion. It's just, it's just this shooting range. Right. And I respect that. And, uh, like right now I don't have Twitter on my smartphone. That's a kind of a comp. I just don't want to get too obsessed with it. So I just do it on the computer. Um, and, and I, and I respect, uh, the decision to just unplug, you know, that said, um, it would be a shame if kind of all right-minded people unplugged. I mean, you know, you would like to think there's somebody in there trying to set your tribe aright. Un- unless, and, un- well, that, this, this will feed into the apocalypse aversion a little bit. I don't know if we'll get to it today, but unless there's enough people that actually en masse leave and, and actually start having better conversations and re- restore their own sanity. Sure. And then maybe uh, venture back. In right. for a while, into, and, then into they a different a, form. and then they need a break, or yeah, or there. But but I mean, the problem is, and this is especially true during the pandemic. It's like if you aren't going to influence people on social media, where are you going to do it? Right now, as the you know, if we emerge from this pandemic, this seems to be happening at least in America. Um, you know, there will be more actual in person conversations and so on. Uh, but I still think you know, given the the importance of social media, I would. I think it would be good if there were, you know, people who were really trying to be really uh, mindful and do the right thing on social media and not 
gratuitously antagonize people and so on and are willing to to wade in but 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 in any event i mean the thought was just that like in principle if fear is the main thing standing in the way that in principle is something that mindfulness can help you with right i mean any any given uh kind of aversive feeling is yeah. something that in principle mindfulness can help you with and yet this seems like not that easy an application of mindfulness. You know what I mean? It's yeah. not as easy even as anxiety, which is no, not easy, but. I would rather overcome my fear of public speaking. Right. Than I would to right. try to, I would be harder to overcome my fear of being like lambasted on social media for, you know, for speaking out against my tribe, as you're describing now, before we get to the courage piece, though, I think part of the, what stands in the way, what obstructs it, is that there, I think there's an implicit problem in mindfulness culture around the issue of non-judging. Because if you come out with any kind of statement that is a judgment against something in your tribe, then you're being a judgmental person and, and just evincing how badly or how what a poor meditator or mindfulness person you are, if that's part of your brand, like mine. <laughs> so I'm, I'm doubly hamstrung. There's an expectation that I won't have judgments because I'm a mindfulness practitioner. At the same time, you you know, we referred to skillful. Was it action? Skillful, skillful means whatever. Skillful speech. And skillful intervention. It entails implicit judgments. It doesn't entail you saying to people, you're right, you're wrong. But it could entail something like just saying, you know, it seems to me. That if we all put it this way, then, you know, Trump supporters are going to take it that way. We don't, you know, that's probably not constructive. And, you, you know, that would be a, now implicit in that is a judgment, right? The judgment is like doing it the way we were doing it is suboptimal, not good, given our goals, right? Mm-hmm. But, but, but I think you'd agree that you know, putting it in a not there, you know, there is, you know, you, you take my point. You, you, you can, without defi- without violating any fundamental tenets of Buddhism, you can wade in and say the equivalent of, I think this is not a good idea. You know, <laughs> like, right. That's no, no, what skillful action I, I, is. Right. And I, and I think you do that better than most because you go out of the way to, I, I have cognitive empathy for the opposing view. You're able to be a kind of diplomat between the two sides. That's not so easy. And I think even if you're a mindfulness practitioner, you know, it's, it, you could still be quite under the sway of your own internal bias system. Sure. We all are. It's very hard. It's very, you know, enlightenment would be to be completely free of the biases. I think among other things, I don't know anybody who's enlightened. It's definitely not me. <laughs> so and let's don't get into that argument either. Okay, <laughs> I know you, you have a more liberal threshold for enlightenment. I think, but uh, I see it as a, I see awakening as a process, and yeah. and 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 it, and, it's to be, and endlessly refined, and, yeah. and 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 to frame it as a as a thing that's out as of reach. I think you're right. It doesn't. See, I don't see that as being helpful. But okay, so then um, the, the the mindfulness to courage connection. Um, I mean. One way of describing that is that, and I want to see if you agree with it, is that mindfulness, in the course of doing it, you learn to tolerate things you don't normally uh, sit with. 
and this gets back to your practice. Mm-hmm. Like, can you sit with not being focused? Can you tolerate? Can you bring tolerance to that? Which I see is tolerance is the seed of compassion. The more you can tolerate something that's uncomfortable, you can start to see into the mechanism of it more. Mm-hmm. So it's this, the seedling. Um, and I mean, I can think of a few cases where I have confronted fears. I mean, even talking to you is me confronting a fear. Being coming onto a platform like this with you is, is, is like puts, takes me way outside my own comfort zone. But I, I think it's a result of actually just being okay with a not sounding so clear or feeling so good or feeling like it wasn't the greatest. But you're the guru. Have... I'm the student. You should, you know, how nervous should I be? Don't. <laughs> I'm, I'm suddenly terrified. No, the, the only reason, don't be terrified because I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not a guru and you know that I'm a, the phrase I like is Kalyana Mitra, the spiritual friend where we have, you and I, and, and I have with others, a spiritual friendship in the sense that we have engaged with practice together. We share about some interest in the practice and we enjoy talking about it. Um, but the, the, the ability to tolerate things outside of your thermostatic comfort zone uh, does breed a kind of courage if you're if you're willing to to, to go. Uh, and, yeah. And so so uh, okay, but let, wait. Let's make sure we have the application right here. Uh, I, I shouldn't have distracted us by calling you a guru. Um, the uh, are you saying that tolerance? Are you talking about tolerance of what kinds of things are you talking about tolerance of? There's tolerance of the things you see online that you want to, in effect, criticize. There's that kind of tolerance, by which we mean not that you're not going to t- point out what might be suboptimal about them, not tolerance in that sense, but in the sense that you just you don't freak out when you see them. It's like, OK, that's happening. No, I'm talking about the tolerance of the consequence of speaking out. OK. That's hard. I'm, I'm talking about the, the tolerance of the. I mean, that's but that's the, what the fear is confronting. Sure, right. That, that's harder. And you know, one thing about it is like it seems to me like let's suppose that you're going to do say this thing on Twitter and you sit down, you meditate, maybe you imagine the the kind of blowback you, to the extent that you can. People saying mean things about you on Twitter. And you're, and you, and you, 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 you reach a kind of peace with your imagined version of it. It's, it's not triggering you as much. It's not feeling so aversive. You're just kind of observing it. And then you go, so you go on Twitter and you say the thing. And then the people call you a neo fascist. And then you're like, fuck, that hurt. And then, and then doesn't that kind of, kind of, uh, uh, defeat the whole purpose? I mean, uh, in other words, you know what I mean? I mean, then you've gotten – to the extent that it hurts, it is going to be that much harder, right, the next time. You're, 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 I mean, you, you tell me. Be. I mean, I'm off the platform mostly. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm maybe, maybe you're not. Uh, no, this is where I'm, I'm – the, the tables – you're the guru to me. How do I become more courageous? Because it – I mean – the thought I had the other day, I'm going to, I'm going to t- go on a tangent for a second if you'll indulge me, is that um, my partner, my life partner and I um, had one of our perennial problems. It's a miscommunication problem. And these happen like once a month or so, and they can get really escalated really quickly. 
And I don't need to go into specifics. Good idea. <laughs> after really spending some time talking to her about it in, in a calmer space, what I realized was that it, under normal circumstances, we're in harmony. We're coming back mm-hmm. to this musical level. We're in harmony. And then something happens and one of us goes out of key. And, in that, and invariably, and you may have different per- ideas about who that person was. Even exactly, right? you're right on. But it doesn't matter who it is out of key because the resultant discord is so bad that whatever statement gets made in the out of key disharmony, whatever statement is there, it gets interpreted as a hand grenade getting launched, and it ex- it, it, it really will escalate into this existential threat, which I think is more or less what we see on the national scale right now. Two warring tribes. Hurling grenades, both sides feeling that it's an existential threat. Now, in couples therapy, what they talk about is this practice of, of mirror listening. One person speaks and, and says, speaks for maybe five minutes, and after they speak, the other person, the other partner, needs to mirror back and sort of steel man what the person said, what she said or he said. And you don't progress until. You, the, the other part that speak, the first speaker feels like they've been heard and, and, and have been mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. or less understood. Now, that's the, this is what I'm getting at. It's like, this is the kind of process that I think you might want to be thinking about on a more, on a broader scale. Because it's not just about an individual, like, it's, it's the conversation that needs to, to shift and, 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 by people, by both parties figuring an off-ramp from the conflict to get into being in tune again. Do, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, but are, are you talking about like in in the converse in the in the interaction between America's two big tribes, red and blue, or uh, yeah, that's I, mean, that's, I don't, that's I don't I don't see an easy way for me to orchestrate that. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I see here part of the problem. I mean. It's hard to give. It's hard to influence the other tribe. If you're going to have any impact, it's probably going to be preaching to your own tribe, and even that's hard because things are so polarized. So if you start saying anything that sounds like, "Oh, you're trying to excuse what they do," you're trying to understand them. What they're doing is intolerable. We shouldn't try to understand them. We shouldn't try to, you know, if if you try to say things in a way that won't offend them, you're surrendering to them. And blah blah blah. It's hard. It's hard enough to preach to your own tribe in times like this, but it's super hard to preach to the other tribe, right? Um, Except the intuition you expressed in that courage piece, which is that you suspect there are more people like you, and I think you're right. Oh yeah. Well, I think there there are more people like me in my in my tribe. I mean, this was a specific issue. Uh, you know, in general, uh, like there are lots of things um, politically that you know in my tribe there are things that. If you say them, I, I tend to get a lot of receptivity. Like, don't you think maybe in this particular case, the identity politics went too far? And a lot of people say yes, but they're not saying it online. Or like, you know, don't you think police aren't always evil? And they go, yeah, they're not always bad. And you're like, but would you say that online? <laughs> like, Even something, even as modest a claim like that. So that's what I meant is like, there are... Yeah, there are some uh, some ideas that I think are pretty widespread 
within my tribe that people are very reluctant to express. Absolutely. I, yeah. Right. So I don't know how we set that up to improve conversation. Well, it's like a critical mass thing, though. I mean, of that particular thing, when there's a lot of people who aren't, who are afraid to say something, it, it, it's like eventually there's a snowflake that causes the avalanche. Eventually, if enough people step forward, you can reach a tipping point where people feel comfortable. And by the way, this is what happened with Trump, I think, is like there were a lot of people on his, in his, what is now his tribe, who, who, who wanted to say these things. And we might not approve of all of them or any of them, but they believe them. And they wanted to say these things about political correctness. They wanted you to quit lecturing them about how you could and couldn't describe some minority group. There were, there were all these things and, they, and, 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 and they really weren't, they weren't seeing them on TV, right? So they could tell, like, this is not acceptable. You don't see this on TV. Suddenly this guy shows up. He's on TV. He's saying them. And, and, and that was for them, uh, the snowflake that caused the avalanche, I think. And suddenly that's why people rallied around such an imperfect figure. A lot of them recognize his imperfections. It's, but it's like, he's all we got. That's kind of a digression, but that's what you, within your own tribe, the the reason I guess part of the case for courage is that like if a few more people can show it right, you might reach that tipping point where something that needs to be said within your tribe is now widely said. Right. And the thought that occurred to me is that you've used this phrase in the past that what's good for the individual is good for the the collective. So, so mindfulness on one level can be thought of a mindfulness practice can be thought of as self help, but if more people do it, with, even with that intention of just sort of right. getting a little more relaxed, a little more peaceful, or whatever, then that that could have uh, you know a, a positive outcome distributed through the collective. Um, I, I'm I'm trying to imagine like my recent experience with this with this conflagration at home made me realize that a I did not get good training growing up on how to be a good communicator and i don't think i'm the only one and it's it, it's a it's actually a, a specific skill line that like ear training like mindfulness uh and they're all reinforced they could all reinforce each other but needs its own kind of practice and development mm-hmm. like in an ongoing way if, you, if you're really serious about becoming a more cognitively empathic interlocutor yeah, where cognitive empathy means kind of just understanding the point of view of the other person, right? Like that. I mean, that that it's almost like that. That needs to be a um, a practice, which I put in in your eightfold Dharma path that you're developing in the Apocalypse Aversion project. I was glad to hear that I'm developing this until until we spoke shortly before uh, I pre- I clicked record today. I didn't realize I was. Well, think about it. What's the first noble truth in Buddhism? Uh, well, I don't mean to put you on the spot. Suffer, yeah, but no, it's translated as misleadingly. I think as, as life is suffering, but uh, I, I'm not. I'm the one who's supposed to not care about translation. So, so never mind. You know. Right. Let me just. Okay. So, so and the then formally, there, is, there is a source of suffering. Ultimately, is the craving, and there's a way to get rid of the craving. Yeah. So it's, it follows an Ayurvedic, ancient Indian medical prescription right. or formulation. There's symptoms. There's a symptom of dukkha. 
There's dukkha is what's often translated as suffering, perhaps suffering, right? Suffering or just chronic frustration, as I think Alan Watts put it. Um, then there's the cause, the di- the diagnosis. What's at the root of it? Tana or grasping, and there's various forms of grasping. But then the third truth is, or the third ennobling truth, I like that translation, is the realization of, the, like, the liberation from the cause. Whether And whether that's a, a once and for all thing, I don't think that's the case. It's more of a momentary thing where you learn a new dimension, of a new way of being, independent of the conditioning that had you grasping. Mm-hmm. And that leads to the eightfold well, the, the Eightfold Path is a prescription. Right. It's, it's, it's sort of the medicine that you have to uh, develop right. to facilitate a deepening understanding of those other three truths. So in your Apocalypse Aversion project, do you, you want to map what you're doing into that schemata? I did it last night. It kept me up till 2 o'clock. Um you, you mean you start, you start with... with uh... It's like a societal level diagnosis along those lines. You mean? Yeah, it's, I mean, I think. I mean, the, the, I would, yeah, zero well, sum tri- zero sum tribalism will more or less guarantee an inability to handle the apocalypse. It's, a, it's an existential level issue. Yeah, I mean, I did. Agree? So you had read my my most recent one where I had a seven That's, the seven yeah, the this, seven tenant breakdown. Yep, and that and that was that brought into clarity. You're, you're, that's that's your analysis of the symptom and part mm-hmm. of the and part of the cause, the, the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So the diagnosis is what? Well, the psychology of tribalism, I'm saying, is at the root of it. Well, um, that's the symptom, I think. The root of it is cognitive well, bias could, and, you, and you could cognitive say this. biases. Yeah, I mean, you can, you can, I mean, the, 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 the way I put it is that the, the psychology of tribalism consists of, uh, cognitive biases, you, you can say for the most part. Um, but, uh, I mean, it seems to me the symptom is not so much the psychology of tribalism as the strife, the conflict, the, sure. the that's kind of analogous, that, that's what it gives, signals that there's a problem and, and it, and it leads, it is almost uh, synonymous with suffering. It's like it's not it's not fun for most people. It's 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 causes pain. It's bad. It's a symptom. I'd say the source of it is uh, I'd say what's what's analogous to the Tanha part uh, is uh, of, of the, the noble truths is um, is could could either be put as the the psychology of tribalism, or in terms of its constituent parts, which includes these these cognitive biases, that's the way I would think of it. And then the prescription is is the third part is the no, that's not the part. prescription. That's the, solu- the, the 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 prognosis. Right, that's the, the prognosis. I was going to say the prescription is harder, but I, I hinted at, at that. Um, it, it it includes mindfulness, right. Um, Mindfulness would be one piece, I think, but the, um, but the, but the, go back to the prognosis. What, how would you define the prognosis? Well, I mean, if you, if you take prognosis to mean. If you follow the prescription, if you're able to follow the prescription. Yeah. What, 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 what is the good outcome? Right. 
the good outcome is uh, true global community uh, at a nuts and bolt level characterized by some degree of international governance, uh, but but, you know, not massive strife along national, ethnic, religious or ideological lines. Right. So are you comfortable with the phrase non-zero consciousness? Um, or what do you think of that? That's, that's the phrase. It's, it's like, yeah, we, because that's what the prescription needs to do. If you, you've been talking about the need for a, a, an evolution or development and, and transformation in human psychology, it go, it would mean, it would imply, I think, moving from the kinds of things that get one into a zero sum frame of consciousness to a non, to ability to operate at non zero sum. Yeah, I mean, the only reason I'd hesitate, I, I mean, yeah, there there is an insufficient awareness of non-zero-sum dynamics, which makes it hard to respond wisely to them. I think all that's really required for the salvation of the world is for everyone to recognize non-zero-sum dynamics when they exist and respond wisely to them, uh, even from the point of view of self-interest. I mean, that's not all you need if you want, like, for justice to prevail and everything. But, 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 but if job one is to keep the planet intact and, and, and get us all on the same page so we can talk about all of these things, including, uh, justice, then, then it really would be enough for people to recognize non-zero-sum dynamics, uh, react to them wisely, even from the point of view of self-interest or national self-interest, um, you know, because, well, I could explain why I think that that is strictly speaking enough if you just want to keep the planet intact. But if I hesitate over a phrase like non-zero consciousness, it's it's because zero-sum dynamics do exist in the world. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like in all kinds of realms, in athletic realms, in... They're real, and and you might as well recognize them when they exist. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I sometimes I get people like reacting to my writing by saying, "Oh, they don't realize that this is a non-zero sum situation." Sometimes I think, "No, actually, that's not a non-zero sum. <laughs> you guys have a natural conflict of interest that happens in life. You mm-hmm. want different things, and um, uh, that are that are incompatible. Uh, but but yeah, no, a non-zero uh. Consciousness does capture a lot of, uh, you know, with with that kind of qualification. Uh, so uh, I'm going to try to thread this back to the very beginning. Uh, we, we're, we're, you and I, we haven't mentioned this this conversation, but you and I are are one of the things that kicked off these the series of conversations is was the tragic and untimely death of our mutual friend Michael Brooks. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> years before Michael Brooks became the celebrated. Uh, progressive pundit that he was, uh, he and I were interested in launching a mindfulness consultancy that would help individuals within organizations overcome cognitive biases through mindfulness training. So it was a combination of cognitive bias training and mindfulness training synthesized with that explicit intention. Mm-hmm. And we never got it off the ground, but we did offer some sort of we, uh, a few series of uh, workshops um, to a small number of people that I had through my own uh, network of students. And one of the things we were exploring was approaching meditation practice as a way of developing non-zero sum relationship to your own mind. <laughs> hmm. 
And that's, and this is what I, I think is like, if, if we can frame the, like, and this is how I'm trying to frame mindfulness practice, rather than having this divided mind between good experience and bad experience, these two, these two binary oppositions, to actually get the parts, anything that happens to be held and received and tolerated enough to see the, the, the larger process under play. That you're not, it's not, a, it doesn't need to be a war, which is often what happens in, in people's in, uh, psychology. But they get divided between competing virtues and, and, and drive different so you're drives. You're saying a non-zero-sum relationship to your own mind. I mean, I, I, I'm tempted to ask whether you mean a non-zero-sum relationship, well, between two different parts of your mind or between you and a given part of your mind or something, right? Because, you know, I mean, you become, I think, more aware through meditation and you can that there are, in a sense, these competing actors, competing impulses in your mind, and and that's consistent with a certain scientific, you know, paradigm about the structure of the mind. But um, but that's not what you mean. There's a reason you're saying non-zero-sum relationship with your own mind. Just a, a, you know, a, a collaborative approach that doesn't try to um, you know, a, a zero-sum relationship would be like you have to get rid of things. It's like they have to cut things out. You can't have one thing without the other. Mm-hmm. And and from the perspective of non-duality, we're, we're waking up to a, a capacity to hold the totality of our being from a, from a different perspective mm-hmm. or from a different dimension of ourselves. Namely, you know, yeah. awareness is awareness wakes up to being able to hold the totality of good and evil within the heart. So, I mean, if you had a non-zero-sum relationship with your mind, you would you would at a minimum, spend less time saying, Bob, you fucked up again. <laughs> at minimum. And, 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 but, but, but the question arises, is that because you would, is that just because you would fuck up less? Or is it because uh, saying that, even when it's arguably true, is, is, is being zero-sum in your view or something? I think it's, yeah, Resisting it, trying to squash it to zero sum, whatever energy comes up, whatever manifestation of the hindrance, whatever manifestation of tana, if you can collaborate it and actually en- en- enlist it in the project of developing more wisdom and compassion, it, that to me that seems like a move, like it's a win-win because you're collaborating with the energy rather than resisting and fighting it. Okay. Well, so that would be part of that's part of what you mean by non-zero consciousness. Yeah, I may not be using your, the term correctly. I realize that. It, 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 well, um, it is, I, just, I don't think it's that. I think it's it's more it's more like uh, my conceptualizing my mind in a way that allows me to even apply that kind of terminology to it. So that's what I'll have to think about. Um, I just think of like when when the times when you like there's a shared. There's a, there's an outcome that's dependent on two parties collaborating and working together. Whether it's a hunt, you know, two 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 hunters have to work in a, in a non-zero-sum dynamic to to take down the, the beast. So if if the if the aim is to become more tolerant, compassionate, and wise about your experience, you will see in the course of your meditation that you have parts of you that are in competing in competition around that process. Right. They, they, they will they will struggle with it, and so. It's when you learning to to essentially get all parts of yourself to function like a like a harmonized team. Yeah, but see, that's exactly my point. That the way you put it there, if you get 
the parts of yourself to function harmoniously, then you could say they are in non-zero-sum relationship with each other. I mean, I mean, first you have to characterize them as as these discrete things that are capable of having outcomes that are good or bad from their point of view. But anyway, that's kind of what I had in mind. Is the way you you put it is like bringing all of the parts of you into harm, harmony in pursuit of of a goal. Uh, is and arguably in a certain sense to uh, well, it 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 isn't it isn't strictly speaking to bring them into the non-zero sum relationship. It's to bring them to the kind of win-win outcome of what was intrinsically a non-zero sum relationship. Um, that see that's you know that's a way I could see that that's why I was drawn to that way of thinking about it. Right, almost. Mm-hmm. Dividing your mind into parts that you want to be working harmoniously, um, and that's—I mean—I think that's the phenomenological experience when you look into yourself. You start to see that you have different, like, and we speak about it colloquially. Like, I, a part of me wanted to do that. A part of me wanted, and there's a whole psychodynamic system called internal family systems that sort of yeah. has a conscious way of engaging and in, 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 uh, communicating and, and conversing with these parts to, to in a sense, get them to work together as a team or, you know, yeah. you, the, you, the core self or the, or the conductor with the whole orchestra getting the, mm-hmm. the orchestra into. Yeah. And there's just the modular view of the mind. Certain versions of which are are kind of that these these actors and um, so uh, well anyway we so uh, we I have a lot to think about uh, we've been we're we're, we're approaching the uh, ninety minute mark um, I want to I want one thing I want you to think about here's your homework oblige. prescription the fourth oh yeah aspect of the Oh, yeah, we haven't gotten to, I mean, we should save this because it sounds like a big subject, but we haven't gotten to my whole eightfold thing, which you say I have or should have. I think it's, I think you're in the process of developing it. Well, last, the last newsletter had seven. (laughs) I just need one more. No, I know those, those don't map onto an eightfold path. I realize those were. No, they uh, do. They listen, they do. What you're mostly describing are wise view. How to comprehend the dynamics of the world in terms of non-zero, like to see the non-zero some dynamics that are play. That requires, that's like the philosophical cognitive aspect of the Eightfold Path as it's being updated right now. Mm. And then okay. the intention, and then the intentions that flow from that. And then there's, then you can get into action, speech, livelihood, energy, mindfulness, and samadhi, which we'll, we'll talk about in that another time. Okay, this is, uh, this, I think this has a lot of potential. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm glad you reacted to that, you know, the, the, the little, the little seven tenet thing I laid out by, by, by thinking it could be further developed, you know, somewhat Along the same lines, in other words. I mean, I had more than one reaction like that. Like, that, that like oh, okay, this is what you've been saying is a little clearer to me now. Uh, yeah, and, and, I, and, I, and I also think, and I, I, I know, I mean, you mentioned, you wrote about Frank, the story of Frankenstein. We don't have to get into that now. But I, I hear you looking for stories 
that are kind of on the mythic level that that convey the the, the deep structure of the of mm-hmm. the, the worldview you're trying to uh, to share. Yeah, and this allows us to actually uh, close with a reference to your work. So in your uh, Everyday Sublime podcast, you did this podcast. I, I wasn't aware of this story from the Buddhist uh, text. I assume is this, this is in the Mahayana. Uh, no, this is this is this is Theravada. Really, in the Theravada yeah. canon. Okay, so it's this. Uh, this guy's name is translated as what? Guy who cuts off fingers or something? What was it? It was it was like this guy. It, 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 anyway, it, it, what I'm it has in, what it has in common with. Uh, with the Frankenstein story is that it's a guy who kind of becomes this horrible person for a while. I mean, Frankenstein becomes this horrible beastly monster and yet started out, you know, as this guy you'd like. And then is the driven snow. Yeah. And then, and then was, and then was steered through kind of hostile social forces, you know, uh, into a dark place. And, and in this case, unlike in Frankenstein, there's redemption at the end because this guy has the good fortune to run into the Buddha himself. That was a lucky break. Um, and he gets straightened out. But anyway, people should, uh, if they want to hear the rest, it's, what's the name of that, that episode on your podcast? You remember the podcast is the Everyday Sublime. Everyday Sublime, the podcast, the name of that episode was Angulimala's Karma. Okay. So you'll see how, like, if your problem is you're going around killing people and cutting off one of their fingers as a, and then and then wearing it as a garland around your, like, stringing yeah, your on, neck. a garland around your neck, yeah. then then that's the story. So this for is you. the podcast for you because there is a way out. You don't but, have to do this for the rest of your life. Um, well, you know, and this gets back to our first retreat. I remember, uh, you know, you were driving off after your first retreat, and you asked me. Is this this feeling I have now going to last? And my answer was, no, nope, I'm still an asshole, Bob. Is that what you said? <laughs> I said, I'm still, yeah. I because, think you're being too hard on yourself. I think you should apply more loving kindness to yourself. I'm, that's, that's idiot compassion. Oh, okay, then don't. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't. Whatever you do. No, no, no. Real compassion is, 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 is not, is not going to tolerate the asshole. Okay. Well, no, or no, I should, you know, I will tolerate it, but I will, I will have, have commitment to, to transform it to, to good energy. Which yeah, is what I'm you trying kind to do. Of, you kind of look at it with like bemused detachment and forgiveness and yet aspire to change it. Right. That's, I mean, that's. See, I, I, that's what I, I, I think, um, you should look at yourself the way a loving God would look at you, right? Like, shakes its head, kind of doesn't approve, knows when you did something you shouldn't. There and you yet, go, because by virtue of omniscience, by virtue of understanding everything about how you came to be what you are, kind of understands. And right. so is I mean, it too harsh? That's what I, I mean, recommend. Okay, that's. I'll take that. I'm gonna. I'm gonna imagine a loving, benevolent God sh- shining down upon me. Next, next transgression. You know, I, I want to talk. I want to talk about this. We, we should talk about this in the future because uh, that's a particular little stick of mine that that actually 
even if you don't believe in God, uh, you can, it can be, you can, there's a sense in which you can say God loves you and forgives you and, and it can help. That's, that's the cryptic thing I leave you with. There's, there's so much to, I mean, yeah, I, <laughs> you're, 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 well, this is what I think a lot of your work does is it zooms out to this 10,000 foot view to see the various causes and conditions that cause people to be the way they are with, you know, through natural selection and evolutionary pressures and technological pressures. Like you, it, it, it really does uh, change the sense what I have around the, the, my personal authorship on these things. I mean, when I act like that, it's, it's causes and conditions that have been baked into me that are just getting expressed. Yeah. Causes and conditions being a, a Buddhist, kind of phrase you know that's the great thing about buddhism i mean it 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 understands the pervasiveness of causality (laughs) and and uh that's the irony people think of it as this fuzzy eastern thing in a certain sense is very infused by the scientific spirit it takes causality seriously as a pervasive thing right and it and it wants you to understand that your own your own behavior and and psychological stuff is a result of causal forces and it wants you to become aware of those and that's the path to liberation and you have to be aware of them because the access to them is what comes up from the unconscious when your mind wanders we have come full circle i told you we would okay so i'm going to try uh following your your sage guru advice when I when I meditate tomorrow, oh oh oh, this this occurred to me while we were talking. Here's what I, on the courage thing. This just occurred to me is like, yeah, sit down and meditate before you tweet the thing that's going to get blowback. But then when you get the blowback, maybe you should sit down then on the cushion and observe the feeling you're having right then. That's what I think I should try. You know the 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 very uncomfortable feeling. Yeah, I mean, and and sure, and you can you can definitely do that. You sound not optimistic about it working. I think it's the. I think it could be the ticket. The trouble, the hard. It's so, so often the hard part is getting yourself to sit down. I think. Well, no, well, I think. I think you're. I guess the the, the 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 skepticism I have is I think you're trying to apply it in the moment, and this is what I'm trying to say. I think the the, the habits of practice. Yeah, build up certain like build up sure. certain character traits that over time. Absolutely true. Right. Yeah. So that if you're if you're if you got a really robust practice, then anything you feel out there in the world, you'll be better at stepping back and observing before it grabs a hold of you and compels you to do something that's not wise. That's all true. Um, at the same time, this this feeling, you know, you'd, you'd agree, Pop. It's good to practice with all you know, kinds of feelings, right? And this is a specific kind of pain that's not that easy to imagine. And it's not going to, it's not going to, it's probably not going to afflict you while you're doing your morning sitting. So, you know, you might, you might want to take that opportunity and it's probably the best way to defuse it is like, I mean, what I recommend is like, okay, so you tweet the thing, Three assholes call you neo-fascist. I don't, we don't really consider them assholes. We're very uh, tolerant. But, okay, so you see it, and then you mute them. You mute them, so you're not going to hear any more. You got it. And then you sit down and uh, 
You sit with and it. you observe the feeling that you're having, which is an uncomfortable feeling. So that, are you going to do that between now and next time we meet? Uh, if I, well, uh, assuming I work up the courage to tweet something unpopular, which probably won't happen. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. But I will, I will try to do the four R's. That I guarantee you. If I can remember them. Um, I so, wish you luck. I wish so, you luck with that. So thank you. So we will return to this whole thing in all its dimensions and I will, uh, I'll try to summon non-zero consciousness, and uh, and non. I mean, I was also banning in the, the phrase non-zero communication. You could go all out. You know, somebody wants. Uh, uh, anyway, you I mean, you could. Yeah. I can see you. I can see you moderating debates. Similar, That's, you know, with people from other sides. Yeah. And 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 shaping it around. A goodwill effort to heal this problem. Like you're a, like a marital therapist for the country. <laughs> That's... <laughs> okay, there it is. I'm going to go change my LinkedIn profile. Thank you for that phrase. Um, you know, you know what I mean, though. Yeah, no, that's I mean, it. That's, that's my it. calling. That's my calling. Well, okay. I, I think I think your calling is, is you're trying to do it for the world. You're right. Country wasn't big enough. I'm the marital therapist for the world. Darn, hold on. It's a big burden. You know, but somebody's got to do this job, and why not? Why not me? Okay, because I can't even meditate. That's why, Bob. Because you can't even meditate. But now I got the four hours, so I'm going to get better. I know and, I, th- I shouldn't think of it that way. I know, but I will. And on your last, the last thing is the the, the retreat with uh, Michael and and Orion. Yeah, uh, I was on a retreat with Michael once where someone complained that their meditation was no good. They weren't making any progress. They couldn't, as you as you kind of complained about not being able to stay on the breath and this. And then Michael's answer question the answer to the uh, share was, "Well, tell me about your life. How how is how are your relationships?" And, and the guy said, "Oh, you know, my children are doing well." Very, very fulfilled in my, my career, my marriage, and life's pretty good. I just can't focus on my breath. He's like, well, Michael, you... Michael, Michael's yeah. answer was, sounds like you have a good practice. <laughs> I, I would have said, why are you even trying to focus on your breath? Enjoy your life, man. Um, okay, so uh, anyway, we, we, should, uh, we should go. We'll be back at some point. And uh, thank, you for the, uh, thank you for the sage guidance, Josh. Okay, if you're still here, I know that episode was a long one. Um, I, I, I'm curious to see here what you guys think of it. Um, shoot me an email at josh at joshsummers.net with questions, feedback, observations, things to share. Love to hear from you. Um, do consider signing up for Bob's newsletter called the Non-Zero Newsletter. It's one of the best political, most insightful um, reports that I get regularly that infuses the the heart of mindfulness into that conversation about politics, international relationships, domestic conflict, etc. So uh, check that out. That's in the show notes. There's ways to support the podcast and show that we, in the show notes as well. You can take a class, you can buy a book, you can 
get a course, you can become a member, all simple things to do to help the show and the work here. And we greatly appreciate any of that, any support you can give, even if it's just sharing an episode with your friends. Okay, I will see you next time. And until then, stay safe, stay strong, keep practicing, and 